The Guardian. And we're back for the second part of this month's Guardian Australia Culture Podcast at the Sydney Film Festival. And this time we're at the State Theatre, uh, which was the scene of so many Sydney Film Festival triumphs, particularly last night's world premiere of Holding the Man, but more about that later. It's June 2015. I'm Alex Spring. I write about arts and culture for The Guardian, and I'm joined again by our wonderful, somewhat overworked Guardian Australia film critic, Luke Buckmaster. Hello, Alex. Very <laughs> nice to be here. Nice to in his home away from home exactly, in the last couple of exactly. week, and, week and a half. <laughs> exactly. We're both uh, well used to having popcorn for dinner at this point. And our lovely producer, Miles. Hi, Miles. Hello. The, so the film festival is over again for another year, and according to Lord Mayor, Clovermore, it was the most successful yet, uh, more than 285 films and, uh, and so many attendances. Last week we spoke about the Australian lineup, which was incredibly impressive. So this week we're talking about the international entrance, including the winner of the $62,000 Sydney Film Festival prize. Luke saw it and he's going to tell us whether it was a worthy winner or not. Yes, well, um, it goes for approximately 62,000 minutes. Uh, it's, a, it's a film called Arabian Nights uh, from the director of uh, uh, Taboo. It's a Portuguese film uh, from the director of uh, Taboo, which was released a few years ago, and it's, and it's split over three chapters. So it's a cumulative running time of 338 minutes, which means it's, um, it's obviously an absolutely butt-crunching uh, affair and, uh, and sitting through it in, in three separate parts. So I saw the, the first part on Saturday and then part two and three on Sunday. Um, it's it's an interesting film because obviously its structure is uh, you know outrageously long in several respects, but also it's it's divided into a, a triptych format. So you've got three parts that are very loosely connected, mostly tonally to the, to, the, to a sort of overarching theme or quasi story, and then inside that format you've got about. Um, up to about eight or ten different chapters inside each film. So it's like an anthology film or a sketch show in the sense that um, if you don't particularly like one section, it won't be long until you get another one. It's an interesting choice from the, the, the jury's panel to, to, to award this film because it's basically one of those movies that you know, about ten people in your life maximum will have ever seen. And if you recommend you know, a, a five-and-a-half-hour to six-hour Portuguese, I was going to say epic, but epic is not really a good fit because the film has this kind of deafness and lightness of touch to it if you recommend that to a friend or well to anybody they're going to say uh maybe i might put on netflix for for 25 minutes instead uh so a very uh interesting choice in a in a playing field that i think is anything but but level so for example we saw out of the the 12 competition films we saw a couple of documentaries including the documentary sherpa we saw a film that was entirely uh, shot in a, a taxi which is tarant taxi uh, we saw a film uh, which was which we'll talk about in a moment um, which was shot using iphones we saw another film victoria which was all done in one take uh, and we saw the daughter which is a, a very theatrical um, sort of film so it's not so much apples and oranges as apples oranges and weird exotic fruits whose name you, you can't pronounce. Mm. So a very uneven playing field. Absolutely. So you, you said that yeah, this has a very interesting structure um, to Arabian, Arabian Nights and it's based on the folk tales, is that right? It's inspired by the, the folk tales. And so what the, the director, um, Miguel Gomez, has done is he's, he's linked the, the, the tales and the folklore element of Arabian Nights to uh, the... Uh, economic realities, if you like, of modern-day Portugal. Mm. So on the one hand, you've got something that's 
um, kind of uh, nationalistic or it's full of these kind of um, stereotypical things, sort of, you know, dancing people and, and exotic music. And then on the other, it's got uh, at times a, a kind of faux uh, documentary sort of realism to it. So he's constantly linking up these wider stories and mythical sort of things to um, what is at least uh, allegories or, or, or parables and at times fairly direct political commentary. You mentioned in your review, uh, which is which is fabulous, uh, that there is some memorable bits and some less than memorable parts. Um, what are the more memorable bits um, and why are they successful? There's a really incredible scene in volume two, which is the best out of the three, although that recommendation doesn't mean much because you kind of have to watch all three or none. Uh, but there's a, there's a really terrific scene in an amphitheatre outside and it takes place between a, a judge and a, and a people who have a series of confessions about crimes that they've got. So it starts off with um, a person being sort of on trial for uh, stealing furniture and then they kind of pass the buck to somebody else who is guilty of heinous crimes in their own right. They pass the buck to somebody else who's been dialing you emergency services and, and using up the taxpayer dime. They pass the buck to the genie who's in control of him. They pass and the genie saying, well, it's not my fault, it's my master's. The master's saying, well, I have to do this because there's a sacrilegious cat. So anyway, so it goes around and around in circles. One of the reasons why that's a really great scene is because you can feel the, the political undertones and the, and, the, and the commentary is not far beneath the surface. Uh, and it's also a wonderful piece of uh, absurdism and, and theatre. That's a great scene. There's also uh, some other really tremendous moments involving animals. So in the first film, there's a, a cockerel is, is put on trial because he's crowing too early in the morning and a judge comes in and talks to the cockerel and um, he can understand animals and he explains and, and it's this very bizarre sort of chain of logic that links the, um, the cockerel to um, trying to uh, reduce the impact of a human uh, a natural disaster. Anyway, so those, those scenes are really out there and really uh, extravagant in their own way and really interesting political perspectives. Where the film um, really falls flat is one scene, and I'll say scene, but really this, this scene goes on for feature length. It's, it's, it's in the last film, it's about uh, people who trap birds and teach them to, to sing. And it goes on for around 70 minutes. And it's this complete dead zone in the film. And we're watching it in this theatre and when, because it's in this bits and piecey, piecemeal sort of approach where, yeah, one short film-esque moment transitions to the next. We're watching it in this theatre and you could almost hear a big sigh of relief as, as you moved away from the birds. And to this, it, it sort of moved into this modern day political revolt. There was footage of um, people protesting and a, and a Chinese lady talking about how hard it was to get an abortion in Europe. V very random stuff. Mm. And then you could hear the audience sigh because he returns to the birds again and it's like oh no he's back to the birds this is a you know like a really really heavy part of the running time i'm sure there's there's some logic for it being there undoubtedly maybe it's linking to the birds and the bees uh because um the one of the the first scenes in in the first film was about uh, bees to cut it very short but that's a real dead zone and when you're talking about a dead zone that goes for an hour or an hour and 10 minutes in a six-hour epic, I mean, it's just, uh, it, it, it felt really kind of excruciating. That's the time for a nap at that point. Yes, right. yes, indeed. <laughs> but you don't want to miss the transition to the next right. bit. Well, I wanted to ask you, you said something interesting there, which was you have to see all of it in not, you can't just see piece, piecemeal um, parts of it. Is that right? Or Yeah, and that's, that's interesting because it's done in bits and pieces. Mm. Uh, if you were to walk in to the second film, I think it would be completely bizarre. If you're walking to the third, 
completely bizarre. Uh, the first film was more or less full in this, in this theatre. And the second one, you could see the audience had thinned out fairly considerably. But the third, uh, it was more or less the same as the second. So I, it really has to be, I think, viewed either as a complete package or if you don't like the first film or the first volume, because it's essentially one film, you stop watching. Right. Try before you buy sort of stuff. <laughs> it is a big commitment, six hours, absolutely. So why did it win then? Well, why did it win? So whenever you, you ask a series of... Um, how do, I, how do I describe them? So artistic people to, to come up with a decision uh, which is not based on a ballot but a small jury panel. They will inevitably, and, and especially given the slate of films this year has been so diverse in terms of the form and content, they will inevitably choose what is their personal favourite. But uh, personal favourites don't apply when more than one person is involved. So presumably there were conversations in the back room about coming to some mutual um, decision. I don't really know why it won, and any of the judges would, would, would know that, but it's, it does send a, a, a very a loud message, if you like, that it's cinema is to be experienced on the big screen uh, as, you know, in, in the form with which it's intended mm -hmm. as a serious, hard, at times slog. I think that's part of the message behind it. Right, because it was apparently a unanimous decision as well, which I thought was really interesting. Right, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah okay. it was apparently right. unanimous. So yeah, okay. They yeah. all... But interesting choice, as you say. Um, one of the other films that I wanted to talk to you about was Tehran Taxi, which was recorded, as you said, in a, in the back of a cab um, by a filmmaker who had previously been banned. Is that correct? Did Jafar you... Panahi. Yeah. yeah. He, he's, uh, he was banned in 2010. So he was arrested for crimes against the state in terms of propaganda. Since he's been arrested and banned from filmmaking, he's made three films. And the first one that he made is called This Is Not A Film, which he shot in his apartment. Toronto Taxi is a much better film. It's a much more accomplished film. They're both essentially single setting films. But he made this in his, in his apartment uh, and smuggled it out in a USB stick that was hidden inside a cake. So it traveled overseas and did the festival circuit. I don't know how he got Toronto Taxi out of here. And I don't know how he's still making films because clearly they're not paying attention or clearly they're not too concerned. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's filmed entirely in, in a cab and the director is uh, essentially the protagonist of the film and he drives around picking up random passengers who bring with them all sorts of dramatic and interesting stories. A couple of old ladies uh, transporting a fish that they need to drop into a spring at precisely um, midday because otherwise they break some spell. You know, a horribly wounded man gets put in and then dropped off a hospital. A series of vignettes that ultimately folds into a very uh, self-reflexive, self self-aware film. So you get a lot of cameras filming cameras, you get a lot of screens inside screens, and then you get ultimately a commentary uh, about uh, the rules of, uh, of making a um, a film in Iran, which is you know, no sordid realism, for example. And that becomes a bit more of an issue when Jafar picks up his niece, uh, who is making a high school, well, primary school, sorry, a film uh, that has sordid realism in it accidentally. So she, he, she um, accidentally films a boy stealing or, or slash kind of finding money. It's a bit sort of vague. And then encourages him to to return it so that her film is eligible to be quote-unquote screenable so it's got a, a very kind of strident commentary on um, the laws of filmmaking in Iran and also as a result of, of the circumstances around it has no uh, credits 
Interesting. Because they can't name who's involved. So we're here in the State Theatre and it's very echoey. It's a bit Phantom of the Opera uh, in here. Yeah, it's com complete with a massive chandelier too, of course. Absolutely. The iconic chandelier. Oh, you wouldn't want to change a, a bulb <laughs> on that chandelier. <laughs> or do any of the detailed repairing on this beautiful roof. It's uh, quite extraordinary. But uh, we're here to talk about the Sydney Film Festival, which has just wrapped. And uh, we've just been talking about Tehran Taxi and Arabian Nights, which won the festival prize. Luke, one of the other films that was a highlight for you was Tangerine, is that right? Yeah, Tangerine. Uh, this is a really interesting film. So it was, uh, it, it was marketed, if you like, as a film that was essentially shot on iPhones, which is more or less true, uh, but with a few important caveats. So it was done by an American independent filmmaker uh, called Sean S. Baker, and he shot it on iPhones, but, so A, the iPhones were attached to Steadicam grips, because he said that, that there's no way you can shoot anything on an iPhone because even the steadiest hand will cause something that's way too wobbly. B, he had a special app, which is on the market and available for anybody. And C, uh, this is probably the most important caveat, used a special prototype lens from a production company. So it's, uh, it's not so much, you know, you just whip out your phone and start shooting a film. So it's, it's really um, a, a, a normal camera by another name. Absolutely. But anyway, it's, it's been marketed as, as an iPhone and he, uh, as an iPhone shot movie, and he follows um, a couple of uh, transgender um, women, uh, young women in, in LA uh, through the streets as they uh, turn tricks and um, get into all sorts of mischief and um, harangue each other and, uh, and whatnot. And uh, it's a very vibrant film, very on the moment, very immediate, very, very colourful. So mostly in, in, edit, in the editing suite, people or the editors tend to, tend to scale back the colour a little bit. Mm -hmm. This one, they've just cr they've graded it to the hilt. So it's really do cranked you, up. Do you want some audio? I would love some audio, Miles. A little bit of a language warning for this audio. Hey, Alexander, come here. Listen, have you seen Cindy? Cinderella. Looks like someone has a crutch. Cindy's back on the block? Oh, yeah, she's back. She's back and she's going hard. Merry Christmas, bitch. Woo! <laughs> I got some good news to tell you about me and Chester. I know what it is. You're breaking up with him. Thank God. I'm going to be cheating on you like that. Wait, wait, wait. What? You, you didn't know? So it sounds like a great story from that trailer clip. Yeah, and that trailer gives you some idea of the kind of vi the vibrant personalities of, of these couple of girls. Uh, they are, are very strong-willed. They have all sorts of confrontations, from uh, drug dealing to uh, sex work to uh, getting in the car with strangers to, um, yeah, you, you name it. It's really on the ground. It's very kind of scungy LA, and it's... Um, it's actually a really interesting film because it's, it, it's spending time with characters that I don't really know that well. And, and there are moments in that film where I just think, okay, I have not seen this before. I have not seen uh, this kind of film done in this kind of way. So pushing aside uh, the, the iPhone tangent, mm -hmm. it's, just a, it's a good story with really good characters. Well, I was going to ask that. Is like, what benefit is it of having an iPhone film or is that just kind of a gimmick? I think it's a gimmick. Right. Yeah, okay. I think... And, and it, it's unusual, well, actually, no, I, I'll add to that. It's a gimmick, but one thing they did get from using iPhones is they didn't have to get permission from councils to, to film. So you can just film on your iPhone because you can film on an iPhone. Uh, one, one assumes that in other places of the world there might be some caveats on that, mm. you know, which is more about um, prohibiting a release or um, you know, caveats around how you screen a film. But at the moment, in that part of LA at least, uh, you can you can walk around uh, not not getting permission from council 
uh, because they're screening on, uh, filming on iPhones. Other than that, they're clearly more portable and they're able, even with the Steadicam grip, they're able to sort of swoosh around. It's edited really, really fast, so it's got that sense of motion. So it's part of that portability and part of that um, flexibility on behalf of the device definitely feeds into the aesthetic of the film. But ultimately, I think it's a bit of novelty. Absolutely. So, I mean, because that's what you always think about, the different tracking and close-ups. and it, that, That's all successful. It's all seamless. Yeah, and it's really full of bling. It's really, it's, it's graded a lot. It's edited um, within an inch of its life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got an immediacy, a sort of throbbing um, energy to it. Um, it's got that real on the ground feel. It's, it's a really good movie. Mm, absolutely. Um, well, one of my highlights uh, was Amy, which is the documentary about Amy Winehouse, uh, which actually debuted in Cannes Film Festival. And it f- is based a lot on uh, footage from friends, close friends, um, her first manager. And uh, it, the film actually starts with uh, three young 14-year-old friends singing Happy Birthday to an unseen person. And the two, two of the young girls sing like you and I would sing, which is great. And then, uh, then it, uh, it crosses to Amy, who sings Happy Birthday with the gusto and virtuosity of an acclaimed singer. And immediately it's apparent her incredible talent that out of this uh, very uh, North London girl, um, cheeky, gobby, um, has lots to say, is this incredible voice. And, uh, and the film tra- uh, tracks her life. And it's actually astounding how much footage there is of Amy Winehouse throughout, not just obviously the official um, concert footage, um, her playing, that sort of thing, but behind the scenes. And you really get to know who this character was. But there is this incredible sense of doom. And they're actually calling it the doomed um, singer, Amy Winehouse. And I guess she was doomed. But and they were calling her that back then? When... Well, no, I mean, re- retrospectively, oh, they're retrospectively, sort of right. uh, calling her doomed. But it's incredibly sad that this, this tragedy is, is unfolding before your eyes. And it actually did unfold in real time. And there's this real sense that why could we not stop this? Why in this day and age is, is that happening? Have, you, ha- you haven't seen Amy? I haven't Amy? seen Amy. No, really looking forward to it. Is it does it start from when... Um, so after the, the birthday element, does it go back to when she was sort of born and, and trace it no, the whole life? No, actually, um, let's, let's have a clip from, from Amy. Singing has always been important to me, but I never thought oh, I'll end up singing, I'll be a singer. I just thought I'm lucky that it's something I can always do if I want to. I'm so lucky like that. I felt like I had nothing new that was coming out at the time that really represented me or the way I felt. So I, you know, I just started writing. I wouldn't write anything unless it was directly personal to me, just because I wouldn't be able to tell the story right. I'm not a girl trying to be a star or trying to be anything other than a musician. How big do you think you're going to be? I don't. I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. I don't think I could handle it. I would probably go mad, you know what I mean? I would go mad. And that was what is so incredibly sad about this is is she almost foreshadows her own destiny uh, mm. when she talks about it and saying, you know, I would go mad if I, if I was. And she obviously had uh, mental health issues. She was she became or had a history of bulimia and then um, started having um, issues with alcoholism and then which segued into into heavy drug use and you see the uh, the downfall of her all the way through and you you see 
the, um, the sadness of her friends and the people around her who do try to stop what seems like the inevitable crash. Um, they do try desperately hard to prevent her from, from ending up in, in the situation which she ended up in. And, but what is lovely and joyful to see all the way through is you see this, the sparks of cheeky, naughty personality, even when she was you know, hunted by the tabloids and hunted by the paparazzi outside her house. She's still cheeky and naughty and she can't, um, she can't disguise her personality. There is a, a fantastic... Um, section where she it was the night that she won the grammys and they her management said to her you're not going to perform at the grammys unless you're clean and she did it and she cleaned herself up and she she got straight and she's there and uh she's she's singing she's ready to sing back to black and uh, they announced that she's up for best album and they do the roll call of all the other people in the category including Justin Timberlake and she makes a snarky comment um, about Justin Timberlake's uh, what goes around comes around uh, but then she's announced as the winner and you see this absolute joy shock um, of her win which is announced by um, Natalie Cole um, and Tony Bennett and she's just so thrilled um, for her win and but the caveat is then we find out that she said to her friend later God, this is so boring if you're not on drugs, <laughs> um, which is which is really sad. But um, but yeah, she's such a great personality. So it's amazing that they have uh, immortalized her in this pretty much definitive um, uh, documentary about her. It's a great, I thoroughly recommend that. I think that's going on to wider release as well. I'm looking, so very I'm much sure looking forward to it. Um, and then the other film that I saw was Going Claire. Did you see Going Claire? I did, yes. Did you yes, like Alex Going Claire? Yes, uh, Scientology movie. I did, yeah, I really did. Yeah, yeah, how about you? Yeah, I really enjoyed that too. But I mean, that's a completely different format, obviously. That is Talking Heads um, and incredibly powerful, influential Talking Heads that he managed to get access to. Um, the, the story of how Scientology began uh, through L. Ron Hubbard all the way through to its modern day incarnation with Miscavige at the head. Um, and I'm slightly nervous actually talking about the, the movie. Much. Exactly, yeah, right? Because <laughs> they are notoriously litigious, um, but it seems like their, their uh, influence and power, if not their revenue, is on the wane. Um, but it was really revealing and how, although the uh, highest profile members, including obviously Travolta and Tom Cruise are well-known for exponents of the benefits. There are also a lot of people who are, de you know, desperately mistreated by this mm. quasi-religion. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting um, religion, if if you like, um, uh, to, to explore, uh, because it seems to exist in a sort of bizarro world. Uh, the, the headquarters, I, I forget where their headquarters is based, but the building's quite amazing. It's sort mm. of like a. It's in LA, I think. U, yeah, yeah, in LA. Yeah. So it's like a U shape, and then it's got a rather large sort of sign on top uh I, I was particularly interested in the way that the 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 church uses apparently according to the, the documentary uh uses um stuff that they glean from participants when they talk in audits mm -hmm. and then the the auditor then um allegedly for the film uh comes back with some of that stuff and you know one one might argue they they blackmail people um, according to the film, be, be, you know, because of the stuff they've said, which which feels to me, if that's true, like uh, going to confession at a Catholic church and the priest comes along afterwards and says, well, you know, they, they, they've kind of got one over you. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, lots of juicy stuff and so many people who are willing to talk mm -hmm. after having been um, 
uh, not burnt by the, the church, but certainly having their own grievances about how they were treated. Absolutely. And they do they do go into the Tom Cruise stuff, which was great. I feel, I feel like they structured it. Tom Cruise it. goss. <laughs> exactly. Movie. Exactly right. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, our, we have to talk about the closing night film, which was Holding the Man, which was, which was here in the State Theatre. Holding the Man is originally a memoir written by Tim Conagrave about his relationship with John Callio. Uh, it was a best-selling book and then it was adapted by playwright Tommy Murphy into a very successful award-winning play which was at Sydney Griffin Theatre and uh, and now Tommy Murphy has once again stepped forward and adapted it into a screenplay. It, it has been directed by Neil Armfield who's a very acclaimed theatre director and who also directed the 2006 film Candy which starred Heath Ledger and Abby Cornish which was fabulous I really enjoyed that now um, Luke for want of a better word did you enjoy Holding the Man? Uh, not really I don't think it's a film that is particularly enjoyable even for the people who really like it so it's ultimately quite a sad story uh, about uh, you know, two, two lovers who uh, get um, HIV positive um, uh, it's, it's as, you, as you said it's, it's, it's uh, based on um, a play adapted from memoir and for me uh, it felt like the kind of film that that may have been a bit more successful in terms of its dramatic achievements and, and how it's going about um, telling the story in a really meaningful cinematic way if it had gone back to the memoir and really reinvented that um, which is what kind of what Simon Stone did a little bit for the daughter rather than base it on the theatre production because every now and then you get a line and there was a line in the film um, you know, be it on your conscience. Nobody says that. You know, that's not a normal dialogue exchange. It's one of those moments that, that ring true on, on the stage uh, where you over-emote or where an actor over-emotes. Uh, it doesn't quite translate in the context of a film. And I thought that that problem kind of runs through uh, the, throughout the film and also in terms of its um, use of metaphor. So holding the man is, is, a, is about um, an AFL penalty for tackling somebody who's not holding a ball, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, what the double meaning is, to be honest, and I've seen an entire film about it. Um, so I would, I would have liked uh, to have a little bit more um, juice to that, and, and I don't think a metaphor is something that you can bookend. You can't put it at the start and the end, forget about it for everything else, and expect people to uh, understand what, what meaning comes out of it. Having said that, I think the performances are quite, quite nice. I think the, um, the, the casting of Guy Pearce is um, borderline ridiculous because he's, he's there clearly for, for one, one or two days on the set. His character and his role is so small. I mean, he's got something like two minutes of screen time. He's barely on it. I found he was cool. Did you find he was quite distracting? Yeah, oh, absolutely. But I also wanted to ask you as well, uh, Jeffrey Rush does a cameo as well as the drama teacher, yeah. um, which again is, I mean, he, I think he arguably has the best line in the whole movie, uh, which is uh, effeminate monkeys don't get cast, <laughs> yeah. um, which loses something in context, without the context, but it's brilliant. And it's, it's classic Jeffrey mm. Rush. And I wonder if it's just, just Armfield kind of pulling in his, yeah, his, his yeah. buddies. It's but yeah. Tapping could, into the Rolodex. Yeah, absolutely. But um, so I, I think, Guy Pearce was less successful than perhaps Jeffrey Rush mm. in this context. Yeah, and yeah, it's, so it's a similar thing with Jeffrey Rush, but he was playing a theatre director, and so they're very. There's something about that role that they can. Theatre directors, when they're periphery characters, often just strut about for a scene or two, deliver a couple of great lines, and then disappear again. And because Jeffrey Rush is so synonymous with Australian theatre, I didn't quite mind that he was a theatre director. But yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a very sort of similar situation. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, though, that as, of all the um, Australian films, and we're going back to what we were talking about last week, of all the Australian films which have come out of plays, which was an uh, ongoing theme through this film festival, which do you think was the most successful? 
The daughter. The daughter, yeah, hands absolutely. down. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I wonder why that is, though. I wonder if that is because, um, because it was an adaptation of an adaptation and it had been so far removed, or was mm. it just the, the best use of the medium? They, so, so Simon Stone, instead of adapting The Wild Duck, which he already dramatically rewrote, they basically threw that out, all out the window. And with uh, Jan Chapman and the other producers, uh, decided what would be cinematic and, and what wouldn't be. So it was less about fitting the, 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 the square pegs, if you like, of theatre into the, the round holes of cinema and more about tearing it all apart and starting again. And I think as just as a visual um, work of showmanship, you've got... These, those beautiful shots that follow people's backs like uh, something out of a Darren Aronofsky film. They are, you know, it's a sublime technical production, whereas the others, uh, which are, you know, some of them qu quite good, uh, I think are, um, are less sophisticated in terms of a cinematic experience for mm, me. Absolutely. I, I have to agree with you in terms of, for instance, the format of Holding the Man. I really enjoyed Holding the Man, but uh, as I said to you, I, to me, it was the content which I found incredibly moving. The actual story um, is incredibly sad, and, and especially as it's based on a, a real life story. Um, I find that incredibly moving, but I, I was really kind of a bit thrown by the format. The, I love a film that jumps around in time, but that really sort of had a very strange structure. And I think that structure might have worked a bit better on the in theatre than it did yeah. uh, on, on a film. Yeah, so. it, I mean, there's a first jump in the narrative that goes forward 15 years. Mm. And we're actually literally told that the characters love each other and have been with each other for 15 years. Usually in cinema, you go for the, um, the show don't tell mm. rule, which is so that you don't deliver key parts of information about this internal world via dialogue, which is the easiest way to do it. It's one step away from a voiceover. Uh, if they had shown that that love kind of grow and mature, mm. coming to fruition, that's I would have thought it was a, a, a bit more meaningful film. However, I wouldn't want to take away from the certainly the real life implications of the film or associations mm. and some of the um, the more kind of harrowing um, elements to that particular story. It is mm. it is a touching story. Yeah, it did. It did seem like a strange uh, directorial decision to put that bit. Um, when it could so easily have gone later. Mm, but, absolutely. Um, but yeah. nonetheless, a very uh, moving story and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a fitting end to a fabulous Sydney Film Festival. Um, so that's it for now. Um, thank you for joining us. We'll have all the reviews from all the Sydney Film Festival films, um, mostly by our, as I say, overworked uh, Luke Buckmaster, who is going to no doubt have a sleep after a all A big long this. rest, <laughs> yes, yes. Nowhere near the State Theatre, <laughs> as much as I love the State Theatre. Uh, so please go to our podcast page, which will have all the reviews as well as international coverage and reviews. Go to theguardian.com, click on culture, then the culture podcast page. We'll be back in about a month uh, to talk about the much anticipated Splendour in the Grass Festival. So we'd love to hear what you're looking forward to seeing live on our Guardian Australia Culture Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Guardian Australia Culture, on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture, or send us your culture pics on Instagram, GDN Oz Culture. Or tell us on Twitter, uh, follow me on at Alex Spring, follow Luke on at Luke Buckmaster and follow Miles on at Miles Age. For now, thank you, Luke. You are welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Miles. Thank you. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.